This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about how our cultural identity, who we are, is an important part of wellbeing. Knowing who you are and where you're from and being able to stand tall with that knowledge is an important part of well-being and we know actually builds resilience and well-being, especially when that knowledge is respected and valued by others too. My guest today is Associate Professor Melinda Weber. She's Associate Professor in Tapunawananga at the Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Auckland. Melinda's work has shown the importance of understanding and respect for cultural identity in enabling Māori students' success at school. Melinda is the Director for the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity Programme, an elected councillor on the governing board of Te Aparanga, the Royal Society of New Zealand, and a former director of the Starpath Project. Melinda is probably here quietly going, come on, get through the list of my achievements and accolades, but it's a long one, Melinda. Um, Also, Melinda was a Fulbright Scholar in 2013, um, in Napayoti Maramatanga, Indigenous Scholar. She's published widely on the nature of ethnic identity development and iwi distinctiveness, and we've just been talking about some of the exciting projects that she has in place. Um, We'll get on to that in a moment. But she really has looked at the way that race, ethnicity, culture and identity impact the lives of young people and particularly Māori students. In in 2016, Melinda was awarded a Marsden Fast Start grant to examine the enduring identity traits of Napui. And in 2017, um, was awarded a Rutherford Discovery Fellowship. Kia tu rangatira ai ngā iwi Māori, living, succeeding and thriving as iwi Māori. Kia ora, Melinda. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Kia ora. Thank you, Denise. Now, Melinda, I've talked about where you work and what you do, but we know that's not the most important information about you. So how would you like to introduce yourself and what would you like? What else would you like listeners to know about you? Well, firstly, tēnā koutou katoa. Nei aku mihi kia koutou i tēnei, i tēnei wā e tō koutou mā takitaki mai ana. Uh, ko Melinda Weber tōku ingoa, nō te tai tokerau, nō roturua hoki ahau. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today, to be able to talk to you about the things I'm passionate about and about my interests and um, the things that drive me in education, and there are plenty of them. Um, what would I want you to know about me? I want you to know that I'm a mum. I have a 16-year-old daughter, a te reo uh, Māori speaker, um, and her journey through education and the things she experiences in the education system really drive me. Um, I'm a former primary school teacher myself, so I spent uh, less than 10 years teaching in the primary school uh, sector, mostly in junior classrooms. That's a long time. (laughs) Yeah, one and two. Uh, And then I was brought back into what was the Auckland College of Education as a lecturer, and I've been here for over 20 years now, um, teaching pre-service teachers, Mm -hmm. Um, visiting lots of schools, still loving being a teacher, um, whether it's adults or children. Um, I still have a passion for, for school improvement and teachers' work. Um, I love being a teacher educator. I work with lots of students every year who I'm so proud are going out into to our schools and teaching our young people. 
Um, and more recently, probably in the last 10 years, I've spent the majority of my time doing research, uh, mostly in schools, but also with iwi and communities and Māori whānau, trying to understand what works for mm. them, what keeps them connected and engaged in the schooling system, um, and what they think, what they recommend uh, we could do better. Mm. And so I know I mean, that drives a lot of your work that th- about how, how do we actually enable Maori students to succeed at school and what do they need and how can we provide that? And um, tell us about, I guess, I mean, we can guess at why, what's driven you to go into it, but tell us about why you feel that is so important and how you came to, to be in this place. Well, I guess um, in my experience as a teacher, but also as a teacher educator, um, much of the literature we have access to tells us about what doesn't work in education um, and focuses on uh, Māori underachievement, disengagement from education. And yet those of us who work in schools know lots of Māori students who are thriving, Mm. know lots of Māori whānau who wrap themselves around their tamariki to support them through schooling. I know plenty of fabulous teachers who work really hard to provide a curriculum that's relevant um, and exciting for children. And I think it's time we shine, we shone a light on those things. Um, it can be very disheartening to continually read negative things in the media mm. about our work as teachers. Um, so I've chosen in my career to take an, a strengths-based appreciative inquiry type approach Mm -hmm. to the research I do, Um, not to negate the importance of that other kind of research because we do need to know what the challenges are and the the issues that face our young people um, and their families in schools and our teachers. Um, But there is also plenty of stuff that is working, um, that's drawing Māori whānau and students to schools um, and causing them to achieve their, their goals and objectives. And I really want to focus on that. Um, Earlier on in my career as well, I was um, lucky to be mentored by Professor Angus McFarlane, who is a whanaunga, a relation of mine from Te And one day we were sitting around talking about kahikitea when it first came out and this notion of Māori success as Māori. And um, Angus said, so what does that mean? Because what we know is that being Māori and enacting our Māoriness is context dependent you know the way I'm speaking here with you today is certainly not the way I speak at home when I'm talking to my family or when I I'm on the marae people would say are you all right why are you speaking in that funny accent you know Um, we necessarily change who we are to suit the context but this isn't something we explicitly teach children Um, it's something we need to model to children and talk explicitly about so in that project Kawatea we set out to find out uh, what Māori success is Māori meant for kids who grew up and went to school in Rotorua, which is where we're from. We did that project with Hedia McRae from Victoria University and Candy Cookson-Cox as well, who's a health researcher from Rotorua. And basically we all went home and talked to our own communities and schools and young people about, you know, what drives them in education, what are the, what are the things that um, keep you at school, you know, no matter what's going on, on in your life, you keep persisting. What is it that drives you? And so that particular project called Ka Awatea um, really set me up for all of the projects that I've done since then. So I just want to mahi to Angus 
um, because he's continued to be a pawarahi, a, a mentor in my life since then as well. Can we talk a little bit about that work? Because I know you have built on that in subsequent work, but, but I think that was, it was a really important one. And one of the things I loved about it was the report that I saw um, was done in a way that I think would have been um, much more familiar to Te Ao Māori than um, a Pākehā academic tradition, in that it, it put forward, these are the things that are important, and it gave Māori icons mm. who lived those strengths, who had, who had been down that path and, and were there to, to be um, looked up to. Mm. Mm. I think one of the most sort of enduring aspects of that research that's continued to influence what I do now is that we used a whakapapa approach uh, in our design of the project and in our reporting of the project. So one of the things we know as Māori is that we descend from a long line of academic excellence. You know, we have a a whakapapa rich with Māori scholars and philosophers and scientists, um, and yet we don't read about any of that stuff in schools. We don't see ourselves on the walls of our classrooms. Mm-hmm. We don't see ourselves in books very often or represented positively in the media. So we decided in that project that we were going to use our own whakapapa as a framework for thinking about excellence or success. Um, and that when we reported the findings of, of the study, we were also going to link it back to icons from our own whakapapa to say, you know, this notion of being a scholar is not something new that arrived on the ships in the 1700s, you know, but that we have always been scholars. Look at the work of Nukutafati. Look at the work of, you know, the the deeds of people like Makariti Papakura, who was the first Māori woman to travel to Oxford University and complete her master's degree. You know, we we have people in our own history. And I, I guess it's one of the things that I find really frustrating um, as a teacher educator is that most of the, the research that our students are told to read, are encouraged to cite and to respond to, mm. don't actually look and sound like us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I mean, we have um, some of the world's best scholars in education right here in Aotearoa, and we actually need to be sharing their research. And so this is our small, that was our small contribution mm-hmm. um, to the literature that actually um, foregrounded Te Arawa ways of knowing the world, experiencing the world, and making sense of it. And um, do, you want to, can, would, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what were some of the things that you found, the things that were important to um, Māori students succeeding? Sure. So one of the one of the things we interviewed students, Fano and teachers predominantly, but where students mentioned other mentors in their lives and other role models, aunties, uncles, nanas, etc. We went out and sought interviews with them as well. And really what we wanted to know is, you know, what is it about these young people that had been nominated for the study that really made that really um, enabled them to flourish? at school and you know when those young people have been nominated for the study by and large they've been nominated by their schools because they were high achievers so they were academically excellent but when we talk to those young people and when we um ask them you know to nominate others was there anyone that we'd missed out on they always said yes and quite often they nominated people who you know they'd say things like oh yes you, you absolutely need to talk to denise 
Denise is someone at school that if there's no one, if there's someone who doesn't have a friend or they're new to the school, Denise always looks after them. She takes care of people. Um, she's someone you need to talk to. So the young people in the study talked about the qualities of people, the way people made them feel about themselves and included them. And if we think then about what the word rangatira means in Māori, which we often use in education to mean a leader or a chief, I mean, a rangatira is someone who can raranga atira, can weave a group of people together. That is what leaders actually do. They bring people together for a common purpose. And so that's what these young people were um, mostly nominated for by their peers. We were able to identify eight common characteristics of these young people. Um, one, for example, was that they had a positive sense of Māori identity. They felt good about being Māori. And as simple as that sounds, in contemporary times, it can be really hard for young people to feel good about being Māori when the only messages they see around them are negative ones. So what does it take for a young person to, you know, believe that they are successful because they're Māori, not despite being Māori? Um, What are the kinds of conditions needed in the home, in the school, in the community for kids to walk around with their heads held high? Um, So we were able to identify what some of those things were. Um, We've had some really interesting results around relationships. I mean, we've known for a really long time that relationships are important for Māori kids, for all kids, actually, Mm. in education. But the the young people, the young Māori we um, interviewed in this particular study said something a little bit different from the existing research. Um, One of the things they said is that the smartest Māori kids know know how how to build and sustain relationships even with the people they don't like very much, even with the teachers they find the hardest to work alongside. Because smart people know how to kind of massage their identity to fit into a particular context. So one of the young men we spoke to, for example, he said, you know, um, Miss, I'm a really funny guy. And he said, but I learned that not all teachers like funny guys. Some teachers like quiet guys who sit up the front and put their hands up a lot. You know, other teachers like people who help them to set the classroom up. And if you can figure out what your teachers like, then your teachers will like you and be more likely to help you more. You know, those kinds of things. Yes, they were very savvy. I mean, one of the, another young man I spoke to said, um, he was talking about the fact that teachers don't have much time to give you feedback in class because there's 30 kids in a class and and he can't he he likes one-on-one feedback and he said so what I learned to do is you know after class I'd say oh sir can I help you carry your box to the next class and he'd say oh yes that'd be great thank you and he says and then I'd walk really slowly with that box and give myself enough time to say so I only got an achieved on my last assessment and I'm just wondering what you think I can do to get better for the next one and he just used that kind of sense of manaakitanga, to be able to look after others, to expect something in return, etc., to get the help that he needed from his teachers. So they talked about all of these little tips and tricks. But it's all, it's all coming from a place of being hugely engaged, wanting to get learning and wanting to get ahead, isn't it? And it's also driven by the fact that um, their success is their whole whānau success. You know, their failure is their whole, their whole whānau carries their failure. So you know, achievement at school is a high-stakes affair mm. for Māori kids because quite often they're taking a whole whānau with them 
as their, you know, as first generation tertiary students yeah. uh, moving into spaces. They are in so many ways trailblazers moving into university spaces that many of their family haven't been into before. Um, so that kind of collect and, and in some of the international literature would tell us that 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 uh, responsibility, that incredible sense of responsibility to their family would be a risk factor for young people. And my research has only shown that it's a protective factor for them. It's something that motivates and drives them um, to, to, to persist in the educational context. That's so lovely. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious, you know, if we think about the factors, you know, that we know are important in, in student flourishing, you've talked about, you've said, high t- you, one of your papers is called Māori Students Flourishing in Education, High Teacher Expectations, Cultural Responsiveness and Family School Partnerships. I'm like, what a great title. Let's put it out there immediately. So can we talk about each of these in turn? Because they're so big and so important. So first of all, high expectations. Tell me more about what you mean by that and how it can play out in a school. Well, a lot of my thinking about high expectations actually came from my work in Starpath. And in the initiatives that were designed in Starpath to help schools better engage parents and students in their own learning. And that whole program, that whole suite of activities Mm -hmm. was based on the belief that whānau want the data about their young people. They want to know exactly where their children are at and what they can do to help them get better. That students have taught how to access and navigate the NCEA system will learn to use it to their benefit. Um, and that teachers, when help to better understand how to report data to families, would build better relationships. So, mm. you know, we need to, from my perspective, we need to, high expectations means giving parents access to information and opportunities to participate in and collaborate in their child's education. Mm. Um, it, it invites them to be part of the goal setting with regards to their children um, and in setting, you know, short-term goals to achieve their long-term objectives. Um, high expectations is about developing positive interactions, opportunities for positive interactions with families. Um, this is in terms of teachers, in terms of contacting parents with, with positive stories. For many, for many kids, uh, families, the only time a school ever rings them oh, is yeah. a problem. And so many of the, the Star Park schools put into place policies where, you know, there had to be three calls about things that were going well for that student, things that they'd achieved, what the teacher had noticed about their curriculum interests and strengths before there was a call about anything you know, else. Yeah. Anything yeah. else. Um, and I also think it's about so. It's high expectations for student achievement, that they can achieve their goals with the right kinds of support and academic counselling, that parents should be invited in to parent-teacher-student, you know, conferences where where actual academic data is shared with them. I I just love that. So often when we talk about high expectations, it's just talking about teachers' expectations of students. And that's a, that is a big deal. But I love that you only talk about it in the context of teachers having high expectations of families too and high expectations of how they can work together yeah. and how important that is. And schools having high expectations of their staff, 
you know, if that if we can actually set up structures in schools so that staff are getting the right kind of information, timely data that they can then report to students and report to Fano, that that kind of triad of expectations will will result in a rise in engagement and achievement. So I absolutely think expectations is broader than this notion of um, we just have to expect better things for kids. Yeah. Well, no, actually, we have, to, we have to create the conditions that enable all members of the school community to contribute, to feel like they have a genuine role, um, and to be kept updated with information. Um, I know as I a parent... The sharing, of the, the sharing of this information and the way they do it will make a difference to people, and that yeah. people want it and will respond, Yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. And I also think, you know, it even extends out to the community. If we're thinking, you know, about the Ministry of Education's call for localised curricula and for more um, local history programmes, etc., well, that information lies in communities, lies with people in communities who we not, might not even be aware of. So how can we as schools communicate with our, you know, with our communities that we're seeking their support, we value their support, we'll value their time in contributing support, you know, uh, their, their knowledge to the school, um, and that we will, yeah, mana or esteem. Yeah, yeah, Give really value and respect. Yeah. And, and I guess that also comes to respecting that, yeah, we're going to teach New Zealand history, and that includes oral history. Mm-hmm. And and some of the, the custodians of it, as you say, it's not, in, it's not all in books, it's... Mm. It's in our local communities if we actually go and talk nicely to and listen. Yeah, it's in our grandparents' heads. Yeah. You know, it's in our auntie and uncle's photograph albums. All histories are important. When we're talking about local history, we're not just talking about Māori histories. We're talking about the, the growth of a community in a particular area with um, emphasis on the fact that there were a people here before we arrived. Who were yeah. they? You know, what were their histories? I quite often talk to schools about the importance of pepeha, you know, um, acknowledging mountains and rivers and oceans around us, landmarks, you know. Well, taking that as a starting point for thinking about, well, who are the original peoples of this place? Who were their rangatira? Who were their chiefs? What did they achieve? You know, who, who lived on that maunga? And thinking about the local awa, you know, most awa which were important transport routes. Yeah. For iwi. So who used this awa, you know, and what were they transporting and how did they look after it and keep it healthy and what can we do as living descendants of this area to keeping that awa mm. healthy? You know, it's all of that kind mm. of stuff. And I actually learned about the importance of that when working in small schools in the Hauraki. You know, there's a big farming communities who, and when I spoke to the kids about their aspirations, their aspirations were to farm Yes. In this community, you know. So these kids aren't wanting to go away to university and stay away. They want to go away, get the skills they need and come back to the community and live and look after the land. So how can we plant those seeds? How can we start that education mm-hmm. and that care for te taiao, the environment, which is a living, breathing thing, um, when they're in primary school? Well, pepeha is a really good way to start that, building curriculum mm. around um, kids knowing about who lived on that moment, what they did. Now, people came and went from those places as well. So it's not just one story. It's many stories. 
And I love this. It kind of starts to bring, you know, there are, there are schools that are involved in enviro schools, but this is where um, history and enviro schools and I'm thinking about future development and strengths and career aspirations of children can all be nurtured in one place. Absolutely. And I mean, and so, one, sorry, on. one, of the, one of the things with Māori ways of thinking about time too um, is that, you know, the past, the present and the future are not separate for us. You know, living here today, we are living um, ancestors for our grandchildren that are going to be here in the future. What can we do to be a good ancestor? It's How such a powerful to... question, isn't it? What can, yeah. what can I do to be a good ancestor? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how do I want to be remembered as contributing to my community? Mm-hmm. Um, those are really great questions, and young kids can answer them. Yeah. You know, we might find it a bit difficult as adults because we're trying so hard to be politically correct or, you know, to be inclusive of everyone, whereas young kids can talk about this stuff with ease. You know, yeah. their eyes twinkle, their, you know, their minds wander off about the great things they want to be remembered for. And I just think we need to start planting those seeds when they're, when they're young. Yeah, and asking those questions. And it kind of feels like we've moved over, you know, it, we've strayed over into that third heading in your research paper of cultural responsiveness. Right. Um, but this is such a huge topic. And mm. um, I guess I want to just ask you a little bit about how – you know, what's the best that you're seeing? Well, advice to schools on how you think schools can take it on and bring it to life. Um, and then let's come on and talk about where you see cultural responsiveness um, being done well, Sure. if you think it is. Um, well, culture influences everything we do, how we think, how we act, how we perceive, th- how we perceive things happening around mm-hmm. us, how we communicate to others. And learning in schools and in the home is mediated through culture. So we make sense of it based on our worldview, what we've grown up believing about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so teachers need to kind of, well, actually what teachers need to do is listen a lot more. What we all need to do is listen a lot more, um, ask a lot more questions, invite challenges you know to mm. our way of thinking about the world you know saying to how to else us, might this be yeah. what's important in your whānau what yeah. yeah yeah that's right that's right um and then and then using that as an opportunity to kind of um open the doors for further conversation for anyone involved in that classroom. You know, quite often in a study I'm doing at the moment for my Rutherford, one of the key questions in that particular study is about, well, what aspects of your cultural identity are you most proud of? And one of, and there are so many beautiful answers to that question. But one of the things that interests me is that the older the kids get, or when Fano answer that question, quite often culture is only tied to ethnicity for them. So you will have many Pākehā parents and Pākehā secondary kids, uh, students, who will say, I don't have culture. Oh, oh, that's that's other people. Other people have culture. I'm just a Pākehā. You know, and I think that's another kind of puzzle for me because everyone deserves to feel good about who they are and what their cultural history is, no matter how challenging the, the history actually is. We're here living together, relating to each other, 
seeking to have relationship with each other. That's the beauty of the Te Tiriti o Waitangi. It was an offer of relationship, and the offer stands. So how might we build relationship? You know, we're constantly talking in schools about partnership. We want partnership with our communities. Well, you can't have partnership without, without first having relationships. Relation- I love, I think that's my favourite um, description of the treaty, Mm. It's so far as being an offer of relationship. Mm. Yeah, it is. That's and it continues nice. to be. Let's yeah. work in relationship with each other. Let's honour each other. Mm. You know, let's honour each other's sovereignty, worldviews, culture. And culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so cultural responsiveness to me is, is about listening and it's about mm. sitting with the unhomeliness of our histories. Um, and deciding how we want to act going forward and acknowledging those histories. Um, so there's, I think there's still lots of work to do in schools, and it's really easy to implement some of the, you know, the cultural stories, um, the celebrations of festivals or particular days, etc. But it's more difficult to think about how might we share decision-making about curriculum. How might we actually decide together about what our school will value and uh, how it will um, enable those values to weave their way through everything that we do? How will we enact and live those values? That's culturally responsive practice from my, to my mind. And, and when you say that, I'm thinking about it as that's a question that applies at the very top level in the Ministry of, Envi- of Education, but it also applies at every single level, all the way down to the staff room and the classroom. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a school in Mangatapere in the far north shouldn't look like a school in Pakuranga in East Auckland. It absolutely shouldn't, you know. There are some key things that we can agree are important for kids to learn, but the ways they learn that, the ways we measure that, the ways we acknowledge and grow, that should be necessarily be different according to context. Um, and I, I mean, that's easy for me to say. It's more difficult to implement, of course. But I really look forward to the time when schools have more say over how they might teach young mm. people particular types of knowledge and skills and competencies mm. in a way that makes sense for that community, in a way that's relevant and um Yeah, community-focused. And that's where I think, you know, um, I mean, all of this starts to mesh together. So, you know, when we talk about well-being, it's realizing that you're not addressing well-being unless you're addressing cultural identity Mm -hmm. and being culturally responsive. And then, um, you know, coming in the other side, there are people talking about problem-based learning as a way to... Um, to combat boredom and really, really have engaged students. And I think problem-based learning is also a real opportunity to to do stuff that's locally responsive and culturally responsive, as well as engaging students. And it's a place where all of these things might meet. Mm. Um, and that's really, I think it's one of the things that kind of excites me about the future as as kind of ways, things that schools may take on. Yeah. Um, but what about other things that you see happening in terms of really good practice that you've seen? Um, I see lots of great practice, actually, in schools. Um, 
think. One of the things I've been particularly interested in the last three or four years have been the use of role models in schools mm -hmm. and um, how schools are identifying their children's interests for the future, what their aspirations are, um, who they want to be when they get older, who in their mm -hmm. community or family makes them feel good and inspires them. Um, and quite often in schools, one of the things that I do notice is that schools do make the decisions around those things. We want our kids to meet Ian Taylor because he's this amazing creative who on the world stage achieved all of these things and so that's fabulous. But actually in your parent community are skills and knowledges and uh, community kind of taonga or treasures yeah. that we haven't even seen or known about. Um, and I remember working with a school principal down in Waikato, and one of the things he did was he asked all of the all of the children in his school to write about their hero, and the hero had to be someone from their family, their church, the school community, or someone that they actually knew. Uh, the person could be alive or could be dead. And he said the young people wrote about their grandparents, they wrote about their uncle, you know, they wrote about uh, their minister. And then they had to tell them what it was about that minister who had, you know, how, how that person had impacted, how they feel about themselves. He said he made a pact to read one of those stories with the children's permission every day. In his little country school, they had one of those loudspeakers that went into every classroom. And he had a, a message that he gave every morning, welcoming everyone to school, etc. Except that every day he read another one of our local hero stories. Mm. You know, so they might. He, he said he said things like, "Well, today I'm going to read Melinda's story, and her story is about her grandfather, or her great grandfather. He went away to the war, and he travelled to these countries, and when he came back, you know, he was really sad for a really long time, but." He started to play golf and he went and did this and he went and did that and then he bought a farm and now three of my uncles work on that farm. And, you know, and just told this beautiful story of resilience and community yeah. strength and, um, and I just think that that's an amazing. Um, I love one of the things you've said to me before that I really love is that you're fierce about telling the quiet stories. Mm. Yeah. And this is it, isn't it? It's, it's saying we don't have to look abroad to find our great stories. They're all here. And so you and I've talked earlier about the fact that you've been gathering, um, you've been gathering a treasure trove of stories um, from Taitukarao. And tell us more about that and how you'd like to see those stories used. Sure. So my mother's people are from the far north, um, from Whangarei, from a small place called Moirewa and from Pamapudia, which is up near Kaitaia. And one of the things I know from my brothers going to school up there and my cousins is that they never saw themselves in school books. They never saw themselves in the curriculum or on the walls of their classrooms. And in my more recent travels to the north, that's still true. In 2020, that is still true of many classrooms in New Zealand. And that surprises me because... As a person from Ngāpuhi and Ngāti Kahu and Ngāti Hine, I descend from the most amazing whakapapa. There are heroes in our history who make me feel really proud of who I am. And so I decided as part of my Marsden project that I was going to capture some of those stories and I was going to record them for young people. 
Um, so in this particular project, I went and talked to many of our elders or our community knowledge holders. I went and listened to songs that talked about those tupuna and the amazing deeds. I read manuscripts. I read karakia. Um, I read whakapapa manuscripts that belong to family members. And I constructed stories about particular tupuna that were from a Ngāpohi perspective, that were actually written by people from the north. Because there were lots of stories written about us, but most of them are not by us. Um, and so quite often, you know, the language that was used was indicative of the time they were written, you know, and talked about our ancestors as tricky, as cunning, and just the language that was used was not how I want our young people to remember mm. who we were. You know, we didn't blow here on a storm emaciated. We travelled here purposefully, navigating using the stars and the ocean currents, and we came back and forth multiple times. You know, and what, so what science did we use to do that? What science did Nukutafati and Kupe use to travel the entire Pacific Ocean purposefully? Um, so we using wrote some these, of the most sophisticated navigation that's ever been devised. You know, it, it, yeah, mm. yeah, and boat building skills. And how did they pass those knowledges on so that their, their children and their grandchildren and people living in contemporary times can still navigate the Pacific Ocean and beyond using our own vessels, you know, to travel back and forth? I mean, these are amazing feats. So I wrote stories about our tupuna, um, and they're currently being collated in a book, but they're also being reproduced uh, by our iwi as graphic novels online, um, avatar games that young people can play to learn about, well, who was Hineamaru? Well, she was an amazing gardener, actually. She was an agricultural specialist who knew how to plant kumara in such a way that she could feed her entire iwi in, in a landscape that was prone to flooding in Wyoming. And how this is really really relevant you know we're in an era where you know there's there's now an a discipline called regenerative agriculture or regen ag and taking care of the land we know is going to be one of the great challenges of the 21st century and there is a whole body of knowledge that has existed for a long time that we haven't ever looked to mm. um that you're describing in your stories yeah, our people have lived for a long time on lands that are prone that is prone to flooding. You know, they they understand that seasons come when when there will be less shellfish available than other seasons. Well, then we migrate, then we move to other inland to to you mm -hmm. know utilize our our rivers and fish for tuna and freshwater crayfish and all of those kinds of things. Like there was a a very advanced knowledge of science, of, of the environment, of how moon cycles influence tides, etc., etc. I mean, our kids deserve to know this knowledge. They deserve to see themselves in our school libraries. And so that was the point of that project. And actually. on the wall. Yeah, I, I love the idea that these are the pictures on the wall. These are the people that we refer to when we talk about, you know, I, I do a lot of work around strengths and character strengths. Mm -hmm. And and I always find it frustrating when we're going back to, you know, um, Gandhi or Martin Luther King rather than Dame Fina Cooper or, you know, or any other number of local heroes yeah. Um, that have demonstrated the same kind of strengths of character, but we don't know their stories as well. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, everyone deserves to feel good about themselves and to see themselves in the classroom, including our 
you know, Pacific relations, including our mm-hmm. refugee students, anyone who is here. Mm-hmm. But we're in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Tangata whenua need to be present too. Every school is based in a place where tangata whenua were once present. So mm-hmm. what it makes sense to me that you would start with those stories and use that as a springboard for multi- mm-hmm. the multitudes of stories that are important to communities. You know, I, I just think that's so important. My, my daughter is an avid learner, but she learns in ways other than by big books. Mm. You know, she learns from people and she learns about people. So she would only read a book if it was about a real person. Um, a graphic novel might, might have been more to her speed. Yeah, and kids learn by going to those places, by putting their hands in that river and helping to pull weeds out. You know, by doing all of those kinds of things, we can. there are multitudes of ways we can engage kids in caring about their, their environment and their community and actually giving them a sense of purpose in that space. Sometimes these, these issues can seem so big that we don't know how we could possibly help. And yet the smallest things, you know, if we all did something small, we would be contributing in, in big ways to some of, the commu- some of the challenges that our communities face. I think that's a lovely question for school leaders to think about in terms of what's the next smallest step we could take mm. to, to know the pepeha of our school, to, to engage our kids with anything in our surrounding environment. Yeah, mm. it doesn't have to be. I think we get overwhelmed sometimes, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Just, I think we just need to take small steps and do them really well. You know, spend a good amount of time bedding things in um, so that they become our cultural way of being in a school. You know, it's things like school starting pōhiri at the beginning of each term to welcome new students. It's really scary. Probably for the first three years you do it. You know, each pōhiri is a scary way of being. But soon each of your, each of your teachers know the process they become familiar your your community come in to help because they just know that the first day of every of every term is going to be a poverty so everyone brings something to eat you know they become ways of being that aren't just maori ways of being but actually our community's response to new people coming in that is manakitanga you know manakitanga means to cherish or nurture someone's mana how can we show people in our community that we cherish them that we care about what they bring to our community, that they're not coming here to change and be like us. We, we want welcome to, them. Yeah. yeah we want you to be you in this space. Um, and so that's what our extension of Manaki Tanga is, an invitation, you know, into our space, bringing who you are and being valued for who you are. And, and there's something beautiful about the, the idea that what we're doing with those kind of gestures is slowing down and pausing and saying, mm-hmm. you coming here is important. Yeah. And we're all going to stop and acknowledge it because mm-hmm. it matters. Yeah, it does. That kind of social cohesion mm-hmm. matters. Mm-hmm. And it matters for learning as much as it does for the feel-good stuff that's happening in the school. You know, when children come into a school, that the whole school stopped to welcome me yeah. and my family. You know, and that in the mornings when we're coming to school, the principal you know, one day a week, make sure they're out there to greet us, to ask if everything's all right, that we've settled in well. You know, those kinds of things that actually say we care about you. 
And you and I both know that there is a, there, there is a, a significant body of research showing, as you say, it's not just a feel-good factor. It's about engagement with learning and achievement. Hmm. It's about being able to settle in and feel safe. Yeah. And, and that can, in if we don't feel welcome. Yeah. We can't contribute to the school, you know, gala. If no one says hello to us every day when we come to pick up our kids, why would we turn up to help at those things? You know, it's actually about stopping and being really intentional about how we care for one another mm-hmm. in, our, in our community. And, you know, I've just been working as part of my Rutherford project um, with a whole group cluster of schools in Dunedin and one of the things that stood out for me the most in that cluster of schools in terms of the whānau responses to the survey I was doing was that they felt cared for in their school you know they knew that the teacher knew their name knew their child's name that the principal would come out and say oh I hear you moved house how's it going and so there was this real sense of community in the school um, and help for one another And so when I turned up to their parent, you know, uh, they had a parent information evening, the hall was packed. The hall was absolutely full because there's that sense of reciprocity. Oh, our school said that they're going to do this project. It must be something important. We better turn up and support our principal and her voice. Yeah. yeah. No, that kind of thing. I mean, it's all reciprocity. It comes back around. Um, That kindness and um, Mm. manakitanga comes back around. Yeah. and that that's that is that is all I, mean, I guess that's that is at the core of um Fano's school relationships isn't it mm-hmm. the whole community yeah and persisting where things are tricky you know everyone's lives are tricky teachers have tricky lives and they come to school and they're a bit grumpy one day and might snap at somebody or whatever and then the next day wonder why that parent won't come near them anymore you know we must persist in our relationships with each other particularly in the relationships that are most tricky uh, with with positivity, with kindness, with good news stories, with, you know, um, we do that with the kids in our class, don't we? You know, even the tricky kids, we make sure we go to work, we're professional, we try to rebuild that relationship when when the relationship fell down yesterday. Yeah. We need to do that with our parents as well and with our with our colleagues. I think that's lovely. I love the idea of really persisting with the tricky ones. And also, I think that sits beautifully alongside seeing the best in people, taking mm-hmm. a strengths-based approach, looking for what's best in. I think that those, those two pieces of advice that you've given um, will go an awful long way to building school um, whanau and community relationships. Yeah, and putting our ego aside. Sometimes <laughs> things we have to put our own ego aside. You know, that that parent wasn't very nice to us last time we tried to do this. Well, I'm still going to try again because it's not about me. Quite often those interactions aren't about the personal. They're yeah. about things going on in their own lives, you know. So let's wipe the slate. Let's try again yeah. with that. Let's keep trying because that kid matters. That young person matters. And that's so we why we're doing it, yeah. yeah. It's not a popularity contest I'm trying to win. It's actually to help this student. Yeah, and not everyone's going to like us, and that's okay too, you know? Mm. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but I'm, I'm curious about whether you think Maori medium, English medium schools are doing enough for Maori medium schools um, 
And I'm, I'm curious about this because I think it's got to be really hard as an educator who works in this space, mm. Marty, someone who's working on cultural responsiveness. Uh, and I think about you and I think about people like Angus and Sonia McFarlane. And, um, you know, how hard it is to have your Tamariki and your Mukapuna in English medium schools, if they are, and, and seeing them not being supported the way you'd like, not having your, your heroes and icons on the walls, you know, how, how does that play out for you and how do you deal with it? I see pockets of really good practice in nearly every school I go into. Um, and most of that good practice comes from teachers who themselves want to learn, mm. who have a secure sense of what their own identity identity is they know who they are they know what kind of defines um what they value how they walk in the world the knowledges they carry their privilege you know their disadvantage all of those kinds of things and i think sometimes that that, that's what's missing in our pre-service teacher education programs is a really good um focus on identity who are we in this space who are we as teachers and what do we bring to the teaching context? Because I think if we understood that more, we wouldn't be as willing to be culturally blind or blind to culture as many teachers are in schools because it's uncomfortable. Because if you can't define yourself, you can't talk yeah. about yourself in positive ways, you know, most of the time you're not very willing to listen to other people talk about what matters for them and what shapes their identity. Um, you know, a lot of teachers I speak to, when they're talking about child development, they're talking about the development of an academic identity only, that that's what schools are for. But school children don't go to schools to acquire an academic identity only. They go for social identities. They go to discover who they are culturally. Um, Māori kids come to school as Māori. Yeah. And, they, and as parents, we want them to leave as Māori. Uh, we want them to remain Māori as they go through the schooling system and actually grow in their sense of mana as Māori mm. as well. Um, so, yeah, there are some frustrations, but um, I think one of the things that I'd really like to see happen, and this is what is happening in my Rutherford project, is that we're identifying in the school things that work from the perspective of the students, the whānau and the teachers. We're saying, this is what this teacher does and it keeps me coming back every single year because she puts in all of this effort. You know, a lot of young people will talk about, I remember one of the um, young people in our Ka'awa Tear study, when we asked them to nominate a role model, he nominated his school principal. And he said, you know, when we have a marae working bee, our principal will come down in the weekend and drop off his trailer and say, you know, I've got things to do, but I thought you guys might need my trailer, so I'll come back and pick it up at 5 o'clock. And he said, just that little act of acknowledging that this was important to our family, you know, in a high school of 900 students, took the time out, heard me say it, took the time out to come down and do it, meant that he valued who that child was and what mattered for that child. Mm. So it's just those, you know, small acts of kindness that actually children remember the most and families remember the most. Um, I remember going to one of my daughter. My daughter attends an English medium secondary school now after attending Māori medium schooling up till then and going into the parent-teacher meetings, and her maths teacher, a Malaysian uh, woman, introduced herself in Māori to me very tentatively, shaking like a leaf, you know, 
And then she went, oh. so anyway, I'm Sharon. Hi. <laughs> you know, and I just appreciated yeah. that. So I had the effort. The effort. Yeah. yeah the, the effort that she had gone to to know, oh, gosh, you know, Mia's told me in the past that her family speak to Reo at home. So I'm going to make this effort to learn how to say, hello, I'm Sharon and I'm from Malaysia in Māori. And it's yeah. just those small things that families notice. Um, in Starpath, we, we talked a lot about parent-student-teacher meetings and how for many parents they were ineffective and scary mm-hmm. and they'd avoid Intimidating. them. Intimidating. Like, yeah, they'd yeah. avoid them like the plague if they could. But, you know, we went into many schools, secondary schools in this case, where the school had organised vans to transport parents to and from if they didn't have cars. Families could let them know. They provided bowls of fruit because many of these people had to bring children with them. They couldn't leave them at home. There was no one to leave them at home with. So they had bowls of fruit and books and, you know, boxes of books and toys on the floor so that the kids could play. Some schools had hired a bouncy castle and had prefects, you know, manning that bouncy castle so kids so families could leave their toddlers just for the 10 minutes that they were having their meeting and go in. You know, so schools that make the extra effort. Some of the schools in the north went out to the local marae and the local church to do the parent-student meetings because that saved parents petrol. And also, it's also meeting them in their, on, their, on their land in their space where they're yeah. comfortable. Yeah. yeah, but it's just that showing yeah. of manakitanga, mm-hmm. you know, We've gone the extra effort. This is what we're doing. And we know you can't come in these two days because you've got shift work. So you tell us a day after that and we'll come to you. Now, you know, some teachers will say, oh, it's too much. Well, there's only one kid in 30 that needs that. Mm. You know, it's just a little bit extra to show parents we care about what you think, what your contribution is, and we're willing to go that extra mile. Mm-hmm. Not every not every child will need it. In fact, 95% of them won't. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just really showing that you'll do it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, small kindnesses go a long way. That's such a lovely note to, to finish on. I'm gonna take that with me for the for the rest of today, small kindnesses. Um so Melinda, to finish, you know, there's an awful lot going on in the world right now in terms of negative news, tricky stuff happening, um, pandemics, whatever. Um what do you do? What works for you to stay grounded and to look after your mental health and well-being? Oh, this is going to sound a little boring, but I really love my job. I love what I do. I, you know, once I've done the things around the home and I've dropped my daughter off at the mall, which just seems to be what she's interested in at the moment, um, spent time with family. Um, I like to read. I like to craft stories from what I'm reading. And I like to shine a light on good stories, good practice. We need counter stories to the ones we hear all the time. Um, and I kind of see my purpose as someone who's going to write those stories. Oh, I love this. It's like there's all these, you know, if you choose, if I choose to go and look on the news, I'll find all these terrible stories. But actually, if I sit down and talk to Melinda Weber, she is the crafter of the good stories. Well, and that works for you. Someone needs to tell good yeah. stories. Someone needs to, to offer an alternative way of being. And that's the choice I make. Yeah. Mm. That's absolutely lovely and really inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Very welcome.
Kia ora. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.